One maddening experience in life is waiting. In fact, if you're a business and you serve patrons and you have lines, the shorter you can make the lines, the more popular your business will be. And some businesses put out a sign and say, no, waiting, suggesting that you can real efficiently get there. If Andy and I pick out a place to eat, many times the calculus is, well, where can we go in and sit down and eat? Nobody wants to wait. Now, if the fruit of the Spirit represent the virtues of Christ, one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And so the opposite of that would be true, that would be the opposite of the virtue of Christ, and that is impatience. It's hard to wait. Now, one of the things that makes waiting on the Lord harder is the fact that in waiting, we know God is good, we know he is wise, and we know what he does is just and right. Since that's all true, it's harder to wait on him when we feel like he should already have shown up. Am I the only person in the room that's wondered where God was in the midst of circumstances that I was praying through and seeking to be faithful in? Isn't it true that all of us in the midst of waiting have wondered at times, is the waiting worth it? Is this going to resolve like I want it to resolve? Maybe you've been around a child who has come from a home that was busted up, and and, and maybe the child's father, I've heard this story before, and I suppose it could be said of the mother, but I've heard it more of the father. Oh, the father made all these promises and just never delivered on them, and the son would fire up and get everything ready and on the cusp of what he felt like was a realization of the promise, but it would never come, and it actually embittered the child waiting on the fulfillment of the promise then again, I love to be around those kids where uh, if a group of girls have just been let out of practice or some rehearsal of something and they're all waiting on their dads to pick them up and uh, one offers a question, hey, I thought your dad said that uh, he was going to take us home tonight. You know, where is he? Oh, I know he'll be here because he said that he would be here and he will be here, expressing confidence in that. It's hard to wait. One of the keys to waiting is uh, understanding, in fact, who we're waiting for. Christmas teaches us how to wait. I want to look at that with you from Galatians 4 this morning. Come there, please. We've already gone through, and even in the last while, gone through the glory of the epistle to the Galatians. So we'll just be lifting out of Galatians 4, 4, this reference to Christmas that Paul uses, in particular the timing of Christmas, because this will help us learn to wait on the Lord. Galatians 4.4, 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. As sons, hear the word of the Lord. I want to go two different directions this morning. I want to talk about Paul's central assertion, and I want to say two things about it. Then I want to ask with you, why does this make any difference? How is this helpful to me? First, the central assertion. The central assertion is this. When the time was just right, 
God sent Jesus to redeem humanity. When the time was just right, God sent Jesus to redeem humanity. Think of the first words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to say two things about this central assertion that Paul makes in allusion to Christmas. First, Jesus was born into a moment that God had prepared to redeem the world. Now you say, Eric, what's he doing in these five verses? It relates to the message of the book of Galatians. Again, we've already been through it. It's like maybe you know what are called a trust baby. Uh, That is a a family with generational wealth that will set up a trust for a child. But the child relates to the trust in one way while they are a minor and relates to the trust in another way when they come of age. When they turn 18, things often change. Well, in the same way, Paul said the people of God were under a tutor, the law of God, that groomed them while they were a child until they reached full maturity and experienced grace. Remember John 1.16, what we get in Jesus is grace upon grace grace. So that's what he's doing. And so as he argues, the law was for a season that had purpose, that taught us that we needed grace. And now grace has come in Jesus. And in the fullness of time, grace came in Jesus. So he alludes to the timing of Christmas. Now, God worked a long time in history to bring us to Bethlehem. There were a bunch of things going on that made Bethlehem the perfect time for Jesus to come. Uh, Before 300 BC, it was Alexander the Great who took over the world. He was Greek. And what happened when Alexander the Great took over the world is that Greek thought and Greek culture was spread all over the world. So the culture was a bit of a monolith. It was one culture... Uh, much of the world became acquainted with the Greek language as a result of Alexander the Great conquering the world. Then you had the Greek thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, who influenced how people thought. But the Greek empire went down. But what didn't go down was Greek culture, sometimes called Hellenist culture or Hellenism. It didn't go down. It continued to influence the whole earth, even after the Roman Empire. But the Romans did two things. One, they were mighty warriors and they were great builders. You think of a Roman arch, it is called. Uh, They built roads. They built uh, infrastructure. The Romans were good at that. They were also good at fighting and armies. And they imposed their authority throughout the Roman Empire and created, in Latin, it's the Pax Romana. They created the peace of Rome, so that there were not wars because Rome suppressed everything. Now, if there is not war, the economy goes better, commerce goes better. And so here you have, while the Greek thought still reigned the day and the Greek language mattered, although Latin began to be disseminated, it was the Romans in conjunction with the Greeks that made the whole world connected through Romans' roads And the whole world connected through Greek thought. That was the moment in the fullness of time that Jesus came. 
It also was a time where the mystery religions were developing and the old philosophies were considered defunct and being outdone and the old pagan religions that some had had confidence in were waning in influence into those dark street shineth the everlasting life. That's when Jesus came. It was the perfect moment in the fullness of time Jesus came. Expectation was at a low ebb. But Jesus came in the fullness of time. Now, the second thing I want to say about that is that God used human agency in an earthly family to deliver his son into the world. First of all, let's please notice that God did something in the fullness of time. Eric, what happened in the fullness of time? God sent his son. God sent his son. Don't miss this. God sent his son. Eternity came into time. God, who is spirit, who doesn't have a body, took up the frailty of our human form in the incarnation, fully God, fully man, inseparably united without confusion in one person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he came. God sent his son. Now, when you think about it, there's no greater expression of love. Greater love is no man than this, and a man give up his life for his son. It's an allusion to Jesus' willingness to be sacrificed for us. But think of it with me. God gave up his son as the ultimate expression of love. I've been with fathers before who had sons with cancer. And they would say something to me like this, Eric, I wish it was me and not my son. I would love rather to expend myself than for my son. It hurts worse because I'm giving up my son to this disease. Think of it. You say, God the Father, wow, he he sent God the Son who did all the dirty work at Calvary. He sent him. No, but think of it. Wouldn't we rather, if somebody had to suffer, we'd rather take a bullet for the team and have us suffer. Who would want to give up a child for a cause like this? Okay, I'll just give up my child. That's the picture of the love of God the Father for us. He gave up his only unique son born of a woman. Here is allusion to the virgin birth. And it had to be. He's born under the law. He's born of a woman born under the law into a Jewish home, which he kept perfectly what God had called us to keep in the law of God. Uniquely, a one and only who did that. Therefore, he positions himself to be a great savior, born of a woman. How on earth could God redeem humanity without becoming humanity? So God in Christ became Jesus Christ our Lord In the incarnation, taking up a human body through virgin birth. Virgin birth actually matters. And we say with the Apostle Paul, great is the mystery of godliness. How did that happen? Only God could pull that off. Born of a woman, born under the law. Please notice the end game. In order that, verse 5, he might redeem us. So that Christmas was all about the perfect timing that God had worked up to when his son 
became man, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might, here's the term, redeem humanity. That was a term that came out of the slave market. It's a term that means to buy, with a prefix, to buy back, to buy out of, to take out of. You think of the tragic circumstance of slaves being sold. And here, they're purchased to purchase them out of, they are purchased to be made free, to be taken out of the slave market of sin. Everybody understood in the first century this term, which comes out of slave trading. Remember, 10% are free, 90% are slaves in the first century. Everybody understands being redeemed out of slavery. And while first century slavery was different than 18th century American slavery, it was nonetheless true that everybody understood this term, redeem. It's a big term. It means less to us But think of what it means for God to redeem us out of the circumstances of our sin and the just punishment for our sin. That's Christmas. That's his central assertion. That's what he's talking about. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem humanity. That's Christmas. Why does it matter? Why does that matter? Why does the timing of Christmas matter? It matters because one of the disciplines that you and I have to work through as followers of Jesus is we have to, here it is, wait on the Lord. Here's the open secret. It's not easy to wait, and it's not easy to wait on the Lord. How do these verses alluding to the timing of Christmas, the perfect timing of Christmas, how do they speak into our lives all these years later in at least three different ways? First, don't allow any present crisis to debilitate our hope for God to show up and redeem the situation. The hardest waiting is on God to fulfill his promise. Have you ever felt like God was late? Or am I the only one who's had any such sense? Have you ever sensed God's timing was off? By the way, these are lies. One of the great glories of Christmas is to realize that God's timing is perfect. In the fullness of time. When it was right. Have you ever become impatient while waiting? Maybe you're here this morning. You're waiting. You're waiting for God to deliver. You're waiting for God to show up. You're waiting for the provision that you know he has promised. Vance Havner, the old mountain preacher that came through here in his generation, he wrote a little book called In God's Waiting Room. There are things that we learn in God's waiting room that we can only learn in God's waiting room and no other place. God does all kind of work in his waiting room. Are you waiting this morning? I am. Are you not with me waiting on God to do things we want him to do and that we believe he has promised to do men of God and women of God develop a default rest in God's timing they say to themselves he knows what he's doing he will show up and accomplish his will maybe the situation is just not right yet ripe yet for him to act Monday, the Supreme Court 
heard an argument in 303 Creative about a graphic designer who did not want to do celebrations for uh, so-called gay marriage with her website work. It's a case that went clear to the Supreme Court. One of the questions that the justices asked the lawyers was, is this case ripe? That was the word they used, ripe. It's a word in judicial vocabulary and judicial parlance for, okay, the lower circuits have disagreed and the case has percolated and now it has come up and we need to settle the circuit split on what's going on. So they ask on more than one occasion, is this case ripe for judgment? Is it the right time? There's a sense in which circumstances become ripe for God to act. Eric, how do we know that? How do you know that? Galatians 4.4. Because when Jesus came, it was the right time because the time was ripe for the world to receive Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years hence why the movement, the global movement of gospel Christianity continues unto this morning. How can we have confidence that God is at work and will deliver? Well, how about Christmas? How about the perfect timing of Christmas? Are you going through difficult providence this morning, waiting on God to deliver? Our soul shrivels up when we give up on God's hope to deliver. Are you shriveling this morning? Let Christmas encourage you in the fullness of time. God sent his son. The second thing is, it's hard to wait, but Christmas affirms that God is worth waiting for. We tend to want everything resolved in a moment, like a one-hour TV program. You know, you know how that's set up. The first 20 minutes, they rip our gizzard out, and you think, oh, this is tragic. Nothing will ever happen. Then the next 20 minutes, there's all kinds of tension. And then in the last 20 minutes, and there's only one story worth telling. It's a story of redemption, and a messianic figure arises and saves the day, and it's all finished at 9 o'clock, and we shut the TV off and act like, well, that's how life works, you know, the, you know. And we all then understand that reality is not like that. It doesn't all resolve in 60 minutes or six weeks or six years or more. I was with two rich guys uh, 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 once and um, I I, I was walking actually through a reception. They were talking to each other and it was a hoity-toity reception. I probably shouldn't have been there. Some guy asked me to go, so I went. It was in the 80s, right after the AIDS crisis, when universal health precautions were taken on by the medical community, and everybody starts wearing latex gloves for everything. And so uh, if you were a latex glove manufacturer, you know, the, the 80s were good years for you. And uh, if you got in before the universal health precautions were imposed on everything, and, you know, you bought at that point, well, that, that was, you know, fat city, you know, as it took off. So these two guys are always jacking around in the market, and so... Uh, you know, they thought, hey, man, this is where it's going. This, this AIDS thing is going on. People don't understand. We've got to figure this out. And so uh, they both bought in, you know, early. And then uh, one of them jumped out uh, before it went crazy. And so they're, they're there. And I come to find out in listening to this conversation that um, this all took place. And the one guy's going, wait, dude, what were you doing? Why'd you quit waiting? You quit waiting 
before it was ripe and right. You gave up right on the cusp of what would be that's great. What's wrong with you? I forget what the other guy said, but I thought of that conversation as I thought, because I have been around folks who, you know what they've done? They've given up before it was ripe. You know what? After the resurrection, isn't it always too early to quit? And don't we understand that God has an ability to reverse the fortunes and bring life out of death? Now, we're all there, and this is very practical, but you know what? Inside, I can feel like as circumstances, you know, I'm waiting on the Lord. I've prayed. I've worked, and things can be, it's like the wheels are falling off. It's like, what in the world's going on? And something will happen that'll just very much work against what we're trying to accomplish. And it's like, what was that? And inside, I start going, woo, 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 woo. anxiety. It's like, oh, man, that's the, I love to be around sages who are full of faith. They're impervious to what's going on that can seem like it's messing everything up. They will even have the audacity to smile in that circumstance. And say something that at first seems pious if you don't know them. And then you'll realize they're onto something. They'll say, isn't that interesting? I can't wait to see what God's going to do next. And they're just, their default is to trust. Do you know the lyrical equivalent to Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Do you realize in that great hymn, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, there's also that line, oh, for grace to trust him more. There's a prayer in there. Oh, yes, it's great to trust in Jesus. And Lord, please help me trust you more. One of the things that Christmas does is it affirms that it's hard to wait, but it's worth waiting for. If you're a faithful Jewish person and you're waiting on Messiah to come, the promise since Deuteronomy 18, the prophet's going to come, and it all throughout's been repeated, and you're waiting, you're waiting, and they carry you off to Babylon. You come back and you build the temple after it's destroyed, you know, and, and, and then uh, Rome takes over and subjugates the Jewish people and Herod's kind of a surrogate for Rome and he builds a glorious temple, but it looks like Walmart at the temple and Jesus cleanses it in the beginning of his ministry, he cleanses it in the end and, and it's not going very well and nobody's heard from God for 400 years. What was going on? The faithful were waiting, but Christmas says... God is worth waiting for. Now the smoking gun to convince the jury of our heart to wait for the fulfilled promise is Christmas. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Finally, one day soon, in the next fullness of time, Jesus will come again. Think of Acts 1.11. What was said when Jesus ascended to heaven? Here's what was said. This same Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What did Jesus himself say in John 14.3? I will come again and receive you to myself. Ephesians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. What kind of shape is your hope tank in this morning? At Calvary. In any meaningful sense, can it be said of us that we are waiting on the Lord? I mean, I I thought about the crowns of righteousness and how many would be passed out to congregants at Calvary. Remember 2 Timothy 4, 8? Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. 
What's that for? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. How many of us are waiting in hope for the appearance of our Lord and putting ourselves instead for the crown of righteousness? Or how many of us are so captured by the cares and the affairs of everyday life and we've waited and we've waited and since we were children we've heard that Jesus is coming and we're getting tired of waiting. And if the truth were known, our heart in our fatigue is kind of giving up on that. Let's all be Simeon. Remember Luke 2 and Simeon? You know what Simeon did for a big chunk of his life? He just waited on the Lord. Day and night at the temple, he just waited on the Lord. Some thought he was a fool. Some thought he was an idiot. But one morning he got up and the Lord said, Simeon, today. Today's the day. The Lord will show up. And Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be circumcised. And Simeon was never the same. All he had to go on was the promise of God. Day after day, there he was, waiting. Luke 2.26 says this. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. He lived his life waiting on what God told him would take place. Are we? Is that us? You know what Christmas does? It reminds us that Jesus is coming again. Let us wait for him with full-bodied hope. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem everyone who would throw themselves off on God's mercy in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the glory of Christmas and how it helps us to wait in the midst of our journey with Christ. Father, thank you for the word of God in this passage. Help us persevere. Show up and show off in the midst of the circumstances. Show yourself strong. We need you. We are weak, but our hope bids us forward. And Christmas reminds us that you're worth waiting on. And there will be a fullness of time, both for the temporary circumstances that we are facing that are beating on our heart, but also there'll be a time in the future when Jesus will come and resolve it all. And his act to redeem the world from the awful consequences of sin. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.